Well, for any who are expecting just a benediction, I don't know whether it's good news or bad news. <laughs> a little more than that. I was just saying to Ruth as we looked across at the grandparents, isn't it amazing that grandparents seem to look younger and younger? <laughs> Strange thing. Last Sunday, uh, Lindsay Ringquist gave us some really interesting insights into the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. How many were here last Sunday as a matter of interest? So you heard, and I'm not going to repeat too much. The one thing I will say, that Lindsay is probably the one person who could have got through that list of names flawlessly. And this morning, I'm deciding to do it the easy way. I'll go to the other end of Matthew's gospel. The passage we're considering is generally referred to as the Great Commission and probably has been somewhat, when I say neglected, I don't mean ignored, but sometimes it is preached as though this was the sole mandate for us to go into the world. In fact, it's not. Uh, it's the missionary nature of the church by what it is that means we must go. But this is a marvelously powerful and succinct passage on mission. So let's, let's read it together, and we will return to it uh, shortly. Then the eleven disciples, Matthew 28, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, if I can just say a couple of comments there. Uh, Jesus himself said when he was tempted in the wilderness, worship the Lord your God and him only. He was citing scripture. And it's very interesting that the same word is used here, that they worshipped Jesus, the same identical word. And so let nobody ever tell you that they sort of invented the idea of the deity of Christ in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. They worshipped him, and only God was to be worshipped. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In fact, the word is the very consummation when everything is brought together in a final climax I'm with you till then and, of course, forever after as well. We actually have before us this morning a brilliant climax to the Gospel of Matthew. It's not as though Matthew was coming to the end of the great story he was telling about Jesus dying for us and then being raised from the dead, and he thought to himself, I wonder how I should end this book. Everything 
in Matthew's gospel, in fact, leads up to this monumental statement. A few years ago, back in the 1960s, when I went to Bible college, uh, I was marvelously excited in the first term as they introduced us to the Gospels. Things that you read as a teenager, and then suddenly you look in a little bit more depth at how wonderful it is that we have four Gospels, each unique, each different from the others, telling more or less the same story, but in a different way. And one of the first things we were told is, well, Matthew's Gospel is for the Jew. And it's not hard to see that. He presents Jesus as king. And that is wonderfully true. The one disadvantage of being introduced to a book like that is that there are other things that you don't see. You're always looking for the prophecies that are being fulfilled. You're looking for the presentation of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, but you omit to look for other important clues. Now, we're not going to run right through Matthew's Gospel, but in it there is this very important subplot. In fact, I, I think it's almost a main plot, a, a great motif. So that's why when last week I heard Lindsay talking about the genealogy, I immediately thought of how ingenious it was in presenting the Jewish Messiah Four Gentile women had been smuggled in. That's not Lindsay's words. I don't think he like, would like the idea of smuggled. But they wouldn't ordinarily have belonged in a Jewish genealogy. Yet there are four Gentile women there. As we travel through the gospel, and we're going to do that with uh, relative haste uh, this morning, we notice again and again there are little hints that the gospel is going to exceed all the expectations and boundaries that people so often impose upon it. So, for example, we read about a Gentile centurion whose servant Jesus healed, and Jesus said concerning him, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We then meet a, a Canaanite woman outside of the borders of Israel, and she comes to Jesus pleading that he will deliver her demon-possessed daughter. At first, Jesus seems to be reluctant to do so. But eventually, after she has pleaded... He heals her daughter. He tells several parables, and Matthew records these three consecutively to indicate that the plan is for the kingdom of God to extend and to embrace other nations. As we go through the Gospel of Matthew, and we won't take too much time over this, it's interesting that many really important things are said to have taken place on mountains. In fact, some commentators draw attention to the mountains in Matthew. They're not like Table Mountain, 
But in that context, they were mountains. So we read about the Sermon on the Mount. And Mark and Luke explain as well, helping, as it were, fill in the picture a little, that the night before the disciples were appointed, Jesus went up onto a mountainside, spent the night in prayer, and then called the disciples to him up onto that mountain. There's also the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus and three of his disciples went up onto a high mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. There's the Mount of Olives, not a very high mountain, just to the east of Jerusalem, but it was there that Jesus delivered what is generally referred to as the Olivet Discourse about the second coming. So some people have argued, well, this is a kind of a literary device that Matthew uses by actually mentioning these mountains. Be that as it may, the important thing is the events took place and they seem to be centered on mountains. But I want to draw your attention this morning to two related mountains, important mountains, that are relevant to our consideration. There is a particular relationship between the mountain on which Jesus was tempted by Satan and the mountain where he met his 11 disciples and commissioned them. So if you think back of the temptation of Jesus, we're told that the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Luke adds to this account the word authority. It's implicit in Matthew. It's not just glory and splendor, but authority. And in Luke's account, Satan actually says to Jesus, It's been given to me. I have the right to bestow authority on whomsoever I will. Now, of course, Satan is the father of lies, so I wouldn't be taking his word for it. But that's what he was saying to Jesus. It's all about authority. You can have authority. I will give you authority. Bow down and worship me. He's saying to Jesus, I'll give you the crown without the cross. I'll make things easy. We'll have a pact. And that's what can happen. You will have authority. And Jesus, of course, refused that offer. When Jesus rose from the dead and the angels met the women at the tomb, they told them that they were to go into Galilee where Jesus would go and meet them. Now, we know there were meetings in Jerusalem, but this was a, an intentional meeting in Galilee. And here you see the relationship between the offer of authority that Satan gave and the glorious reality of the authority that God bestowed upon Jesus. We cannot be absolutely certain uh, onto which mountain Jesus, they went and Jesus met them. 
Some people have argued that because of the wording in the original, it was the mountain where he in fact had prayed and then appointed them to be disciples. And that would make a lot of sense. But it really doesn't uh, help to be super dogmatic when scripture itself doesn't make that clear. And so the translations generally tell us that it was the mountain to which Jesus, or of which had been spoken and to which they had been told to go. It doesn't really matter which mountain it was. Now we read the passage, but I'd like us to read again after one or two quick remarks. First of all, the translation, to make it read easily, just slightly obscures the fact that the word all is used quite a number of times with significance. And secondly, just to point out, as we read this again, you'll notice there are three parts to it. There is a, a very important declaration, then there is the commission, and then there is an assurance. So now reading it again, I'll probably just change the translation slightly in order to make those points. I'm not adding anything to the text. I'm actually taking it from the original text. So let's read it. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Don't you like the honesty over here? Then Jesus came to them and said, Actually, the word order is a little different here. It says in our version, to make it read easily, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But very often, in order to emphasize a point in Greek, you are able to throw words to the front of the sentence. And so it reads literally, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth to me, to make that point. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So it's all authority, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, it says, everything, all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, it says here, always all the days to the very end or consummation of the age. First of all, that, that very important declaration has been given to me all authority. That which Satan was offering, he has now received and is the holder at this point of all authority. That is the position right now. Now we know that between the already, the inauguration of the kingdom, and its consummation, its final arrival in full form, there is between the already and the not yet a time when there is still evil in the world, when the battle continues to rage. Let me say this morning, that does not change one iota the fact that right now, all authority 
is in the hands of the risen and exalted Christ. Scripture is completely clear on that reality. Read Ephesians 1, and it's very clear. There are, of course, reasons why between the already and the not yet, things don't always look quite right. It doesn't look as though Jesus is in charge. We're aware of all the evil in the world. There are various reasons for this, one of which Peter tells us. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. But we are told right now, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This does not refer to a future period that some speak about when Jesus will, in fact, have that authority. He has that authority now, right now. Now is the time when he is reigning until he has put all enemies under his feet. The picture is a positive one. In the book of Revelation, where the cosmic struggle is described in graphic detail, and that also refers to, to now, not to some future period, when it's described in graphic detail, we're alerted at the outset of the book to the glorious reality. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. It's a prophecy taken from Zechariah and universalized, as it were. The day is coming when he will be acknowledged as Lord of Lords. So that's the initial all-important statement. And you can't read the Great Commission without taking that into account. But then the commission itself, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. I don't know how many of you can remember when you were taught English grammar at school. I can just vaguely but one of the things they taught you when you analyzed a sentence was you didn't know what was a subordinate clause and what was the main clause, is to go and look for the finite verb. And if you could locate the finite verb, you underlined that, and then you knew where the main clause was. And the subordinate clause is related to that main clause. Now, I'm not going to try to give you an English lesson. I'll just get myself into trouble but you looked for the finite verb. Now, in this commission, in this section, there is only one finite verb. The other words are participles. And I think there's significance there. The finite verb is make disciples. That's what it's about. It says literally going, or as you go, make disciples of all the nations baptizing them, particle, a participle, and then later teaching them. It, they cluster around that essential thought of going to all the nations. 
I'm sure some of us will have heard of William Carey. I actually have the privilege of, of teaching at a college in Vancouver, uh, which is called College, after him. Carey, in the late 1700s, was a young pastor, still under the age of 30, and God spoke to him about the importance of evangelizing, of taking the message to people who had never heard it. Now, on that day, that was something of an oddity because it was sort of assumed, as it still is sometimes, that there's the Christian countries like the Christian West and then there are the heathen nations over there. And it wasn't really necessary to worry too much about them, but we had to do our work at home, as it were. Kerry was getting a different picture, and he stood up at a meeting in which there which there were several ministers, and he started to suggest that they should be considering the need to take the gospel to people in other parts of the world. And an elderly minister, you know, ministers, when they get elderly, can get quite crotchety. An elderly minister said to him, Sit down, young man. When God is ready to save the heathen, he will do so without your help or mine. William Carey was not deterred. In fact, it almost caused him to redouble his efforts. And so, among other things, he produced a little pamphlet on the subject. Now, the pamphlet was only 87 pages in length. Let's just see if I can find it. In fact, if I, if I mention... The title to you, you'll realize that, uh, in fact, we could be spending a long time just looking at the title. It's, I've got it, I've got it, so you didn't get away with that one. It reads as follows. By the way, if there are any aspirant authors here, one of the things they tell you is find a compact title. You can put a colon and put a subtitle there, but make sure your title is compact. Well, Kerry took this extremely seriously. And so the title of his 87-page pamphlet was An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practical practicability of future undertakings are considered. Now, if you've been put off by the title, let me tell you, this is a very well-reasoned document. And he's dealing with the question of the importance that we actually attach to that Great Commission as applying to all Christians. So he, he wrote that one. So any of the authors who really want a title, um, I'll give it to you for free if you like. Well, William Carey actually went to India, spent 40 years there, established a seminary. He was a magnificent, he's a cobbler by trade. He is a magnificent linguist, taught himself Greek, Hebrew, Latin, translated the Bible into Bengali, which he had to learn, and he had seven children, his wife became ill, 
He lost both of his daughters and one of his sons. But he stuck to it. He believed what he was saying. And he saw the importance in the face of criticism of taking the gospel to people who had never heard it. As someone has said, no one really has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has heard it once. Well, you can't just work like that. But point taken. The importance of going to those who don't know. And that was the instruction. It was revolutionary at the time. Of course, we look back on it and it makes sense. Take the gospel to all the nations. But when Jesus said that to his disciples, it seemed the furthest thing from their imagination. That was not how they thought of things at that time. The story of the church is a magnificent story because that's precisely what happened. By the way, Kerry's great statement that many of us probably recognize is expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. His main point, this applies to all of us, not just to the 11 disciples, but to every last one of us. In other words, I am looking this morning at a congregation of missionaries. That's what you are if you're God's child. Then comes this wonderful assurance. It's the third part of the commission, and it's arguably as important as the other two. And look, I am with you all the days until the consummation of the age. By the way, the I there is also emphatic. There are different ways of saying that, and the way it's said here is emphatic. I, it is I will be with you till the end of the age, all the days. Someone has translated that day in, day out. Now you can see how these three portions of the commission actually belong together. It's the authority of Jesus that gives us reason to go and take the message and disciple all nations. And if you're involved in that task, you can't possibly do it without him. But he promises, I am with you till the very consummation of the age. So much can be said about this passage. We've uh, skimmed it this morning. But I wish to draw attention to just three implications for us as individuals and for us as a church. First of all, wherever we are, we are involved in the mission of the one church. Johannes Blau, an excellent Dutch missiologist, put it this way. He said, there is no church other than the church sent into the world. And there is no mission other than the mission of the church of Christ. It was a great emphasis of his. One of the greatest missiologists ever to live, in my view, was David Bosch. Now, he's a South African. When you're overseas as a South African, you get quite proud 
of other South Africans as you encounter the impact that they have in fact had. And so very often people would come to me in North America and say, you know what, you sound just like Ernie Els. And I would shake my head and say, no, no, I don't. I play golf like Ernie Els, but I don't sound like him. I think I, I sound more like him than I play golf like him. But everybody knows Ernie Els. I was interested in North America to actually find out how many people had been influenced by David Bosch in his outstanding work called Transforming Missions. I didn't know David Bosch well, but he was an outstandingly humble, brilliant man who did a great deal. In fact, I met with someone in Vancouver who was doing a course on missions for our college and he told me that on three separate occasions, Princeton Theological Seminary had invited David Bosch to occupy their chair of world mission. Now, that is a prestigious appointment. All three times he turned them down because he believed he still had work to do in South Africa. Now, interestingly, he refers to what he calls the mystical doctrine of salt water. And he says this. He says the difference between home and foreign missions is not one of principle but of scope. We therefore have to repudiate the mystical doctrine of salt water. That is, the idea that traveling to foreign lands is the sine qua non, the without which nothing or not, for any kind of missionary endeavor and the final test and criterion of what is truly missionary. Let me be pretty blunt here. I pastored for a few years, and in almost every church, there are people who are enthusiasts relative to foreign missions. And they almost overemphasize the importance. Fortunately, they're on the same team as William Carey. They're absolutely right. There is a need to be over there. Then there are other people who arise, and I'm sure we have none here, who actually say this is a lot of nonsense. God has called us here. Missions over there is expensive and it's a waste of time. We have our mission field here. Who's right? Both are right. Both are wrong. Because you cannot really have one without the other. C.T. Studd, who is a great, one of the Cambridge Seven, and he was captain of the England cricket team, and I'm not that much in favor of him for that reason, was a great missionary himself. And he said, the light that shines farthest shines brightest, nearest home. So the picture is this. There is one mission field across the world. There are different needs, and it is important demographically, never mind what Jesus said as important, as, as vitally important as that is. Just demographically, there will always be a need for people to go, sometimes at huge expense, to cross barriers, 
and in order to actually take the gospel and fulfill the Great Commission. But we can't confine mission to that. Right here, there's no such thing as a Christian country. Right here, you are in a non-Christian country. It was non-Christian in the apartheid days, and it's non-Christian today. Non-Christian probably in different ways, but it was non-Christian then, it's non-Christian now. As a believer, you have the privilege and responsibility of taking this great message to people who need to hear all about it. So every single, the second inference is every single one of us is a missionary. One of the churches I was privileged to pastor, we had a sign-up, and when you left the church, it hit you, you couldn't actually get out there unless you put your head, looked at the floor, without seeing it. It read simply, you are about to enter your mission field. Now that was, the sentiment was great. And it was an important reminder. That's why we're here. But in actual fact, without being pedantic, strictly speaking, that's not correct. If you are a child of God, you cannot leave your mission field even when you're sitting in church. Because to be a Christian and to be in the world is to be a missionary. Jesus prayed, my prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So, to be a Christian and to be in the world is to be a missionary. I can be a bad missionary and I can be a good missionary. I can be an active missionary or I can be an inactive missionary. The one thing I cannot be is a non-missionary. If I'm God's child and I'm here by virtue of what the church is, what the world is, and who I am, I am a missionary. That's why I'm here. Well, finally, if we are missional in our outlook, it changes the way we do church. Now, I shouldn't really need to make this explicit, but perhaps I should. Uh, we love it here at Pinelands. So nothing I am saying is a judgment on the church. In fact, one of the joys that Ruth and I have experienced since coming back to Pinelands has been the, the degree to which the church is directly and indirectly involved in world mission in various ways, and we don't play the one off against the other. That's been great, and that is important. So please, no one infer that what I'm saying here is in any way a criticism. We just thank the Lord for what is taking place here. But I have uh, recently read a book by William Willimon. Willimon, just to give you a little bit of context, is a great theologian and pastor and was a bishop of the United Methodist Church and now serves 
as a professor at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina. And he makes some really thought-provoking points. One of his, in one of his many books, he contrasts a missional church or a missional model of church with the maintenance model of church. And here's what he says. Listen to his wise words. When faced with the need for change, the maintenance congregation says, if this upsets our members, we won't do it. The missional congregation says, if this will help us reach someone outside our congregation, let's take the risk. When contemplating congregational innovation, members of the maintenance congregation wonder, how will this change affect me and my family? The mission-orientated congregation asks, Will this change be well received by someone outside my family? The maintenance congregation says, the main thing is to be faithful to our past. The mission congregation says, the main thing is to be faithful to God's promised future. And then Willeman comments, with a resurrected Christ, we have far more future ahead of us than past behind us. The maintenance congregation asks, how many Methodists live in our area? We'll transpose that. How many Baptists live in our area? The missional congregation asks, how many unchurched people live within 20 minutes of the church? The maintenance congregation asks, how can we save this congregation? The mission congregation asks, how can we participate in God's salvation of the world? So let me conclude by just acknowledging that some of us are probably a little nervous about the whole idea of being missionaries in our context. That's one of the reasons, I think, that the threefold nature of this commission is really important. Because it is Jesus to whom all authority has been given. It is he who tells us to make disciples of all the nations. And it is he who assures us, I... I myself, you could almost render it, am with you all the days, day in, day out, till the consummation of the age. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, uh, realizing that you have bestowed on us an awesome privilege Rejoicing in the fact that even now we are not clamoring as those who are defeated, somehow in a losing cause, seeking hopefully to make some impact on the kingdom of darkness. We are following one who said 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We thank you for your presence with us. We pray as we uh, enter a new year that you'd give us the joy as, as congregations and as individuals of actually seeing a number of people coming to salvation. So, Lord, we put ourselves in your hands and ask for your empowerment in Jesus' name.